In 2013, Sheryl Sandberg released her book, Lean In, Women, Work, and the Will to Lead. If you are unfamiliar with Sandberg, she was the head of ad sales for Google before moving over to Facebook to become their chief operating officer. You could say she has a thing or two to share about making it in a male-dominated profession. In the book, she encouraged women to lean into leadership positions, to demand a seat at the executive table, and to climb the corporate jungle gym to their dream leadership job. Within months of its release, it sold over one million copies. Over one million readers experienced her thoughts and opinions on equitable leadership. Sandberg believes that while there are societal barriers preventing women from moving into leadership roles, there are also barriers that women create for themselves by living out systematic discrimination and society-based gender roles. Sandberg argued that in order for change to happen, women need to break down those barriers by striving for and achieving leadership roles. Within the pages of the book, her goal was to encourage women to lean into positions of leadership because she believes that by having more female voices in positions of power, there will be more equitable opportunities created for everyone. She writes, quote, a truly equal world would be one where women ran half of our countries and companies and men ran half of our homes, end quote. I read the book, or actually I devoured it, and I took away some useful tidbits of encouragement and motivation for my own career goals. But then things changed. There has been a shift in the years since Lean In hit bookstores. Heck, even in the last two years, things have changed. Between the Time's Up and the Me Too movements, something in society has shifted. Conversations about women in leadership aren't so much about women making a place for themselves, wedging themselves at the boardroom table. It's more about society needing to change to make room for women, all women. And it's not just about getting into the C-suite in Silicon Valley. Healthcare has a distinctly unbalanced workforce. Over 80% of the workforce are women, and yet a disproportionately smaller percentage are in leadership positions in the range of 30% in leadership roles in hospitals or healthcare organizations. So while Sandberg encouraged us to just lean in, there's a much bigger conversation happening. And it's not just about women, it's about everyone. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. When I was researching this topic, I wanted to find someone who could speak about the lack of women in leadership, specifically in healthcare. I also wanted to find someone who could give some hope to the situation, who had a plan to start addressing this. I found both in Ivy Borgo. Ivy's a professor at the Telfer School of Management and the Institute of Population Health at the University of Ottawa. She's also the Canadian Institutes of Health Research Chair in Gender, Work, and Health Human Resources. And those are just the highlights. She has extensive experience with research, health, and gender studies. As she told me, all her work is done with a gender lens. I was intrigued by a current project Ivy is part of called Empowering Women Leaders in Health, Jackpot. Not only was she familiar with the issue, she was working to change it. Before we get too far into the solution, or at least a plan to get more women into leadership roles, I think there are some basics I'd like to cover, or at least have Ivy cover. When we're talking about quote-unquote leadership, what do we mean by that? In my example of Sheryl Sandberg, it brings to mind images of power suits, power lunches, and a large boardroom table. But Ivy explains what her team means by leadership. That leadership is 
leadership is not just about being in a position of authority. That's important, um, but that's not the only way that one can express leadership skills. Um, and so we use the term, we lead from where we are. We lead. And so what is it that we can do in the day-to-day lives that we have in the positions that we are already in to move greater gender equity? When we talk about more women moving into leadership, it doesn't necessarily mean women moving into VP or CEO roles. In fact, some leaders make the biggest impression when they don't have the fancy job title to go with it. Another point that Ivy made to me was that although leadership doesn't necessarily mean authority, it is still important. It's important to get more women into positions of authority. Ivy mentioned something in that clip I continue to ask her about, the idea of equity versus equality. Again, I think this is a baseline definition we need to understand before going further. I use the term equity quite purposive, because if we were talking about women's equality, we would be wanting to get women and men in uh, leadership positions at a 50-50 rate. That is not equitable in a sector where over 80% of the workers are women. And those are the workers we count. You know, we don't count, you know, the care aides and personal support workers or the, you know, the the, uh, caregivers at home, the family caregivers. This is a predominantly female sector. So when we're talking equity, we're not done at 50-50. We need to push on. You'll notice that Ivy makes a point of using the term equitable and equity quite a bit. So I wanted to be sure that you noticed it and you understood why. What led me to Ivy in the first place was her involvement in the Empowering Women Leaders in Health project. I asked her how she came to be part of it. I responded to a call from States Women Canada, uh, which was about an overarching uh, approach uh, project that they had an initiative to look at empowering women leaders. And um, our proposal was to look specifically at healthcare, health sciences, and that intersection with uh, looking at the unique circumstances of Indigenous women leaders. So at that intersection of healthcare and health sciences. And that was part of an initiative to identify 150 women leaders for the 150th um, anniversary of Canada. From a description online, I found out that the project aims to transform the healthcare, health sciences, and Indigenous health system by increasing participation, visibility, and advancement of women in leadership positions. It is a collaboration with the Canadian College of Health Leaders and the Canadian Health Leadership Network. Working with Ivy and her colleague, Barbara Orzer, the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvements and the Center for Research and Education on Women and Work received $400,000 for the Empowering Women Leaders in Health project. Ivy explained why she felt the angle of women leadership in healthcare provided an advantage. And uh, we made the case uh, because of the, this kind of paradox that we have in healthcare, um, that it is the sector that women work predominantly. Um, it is a, uh, internationally, it's about 70% of women work in healthcare, but in Canada, that's over 83%. And so women have entered into healthcare um, more often and um, uh, well, more frequently. Uh, so both men and women are going into healthcare, so the health sector is growing. 
but the uh, women's uh, participation is growing even further. And that's largely because women are moving into traditionally masculine occupations. This is interesting, but not surprising. The workforce is changing. More women are heading into the traditionally male-dominated professions, such as physicians and surgeons. Yet fewer men are heading into the female-dominated professions, like nursing, midwifery, and dental hygiene. So we still have an imbalance. Recently, Plan International, an organization dedicated to children's rights and equality for women, interviewed close to 10,000 young women about leadership and discrimination. While the majority said that they wanted to be a leader, 9 out of 10 felt that female leaders experienced discrimination and sexual harassment. They also overwhelmingly agreed that women in leadership have to work harder than men in order to be respected. I'll just remind you that these are children saying this. Young women of today are so aware of the uphill battle they face, and yet they want to face it. They want to take it on. Plan International's most recent campaign is about equality for girls with the hashtag Girls Get Equal. They're leading a charge to ensure girls have the space and opportunity to be heard, especially at a leadership level. The movement emphasizes the need for representation in schools, homes, and in government. There's no specific mention of healthcare, but I think any establishment that currently has opportunities that represent and influence public opinion should be lumped in with this. So these young women are eager and willing to step into leadership roles. So what's preventing them from doing so? As mentioned, they face more discrimination and sexual harassment. But I want to go back even further. What is preventing women from even believing they can take on the challenge and work of a leadership role? Ivy touched on an interesting concept that might explain it a bit. Um, so child care, child rearing, older adult care, you know, housekeeping. We refer to that as reproductive labor. And despite women moving into um, the paid labor force and into these more prestigious occupations, um, we see very little in the way of their reproductive labor going down and very, very little in terms of reproductive labor of their male partners going up. So from the start, women are behind in many ways. Simply by being the dominant caregiver is enough to set up a barrier to success. She also talked a lot of systemic barriers. These are the things that are set up in our society's approach to leadership. I did a bit of research to see what other barriers are standing in our way. For International Women's Day in 2019, the theme was Balance for Better. It talked about the progress that has been made to a gender-balanced world, but the need for advancement, especially in leadership. The Canadian Women's Foundation emphasized that getting women into leadership roles begins much, much earlier in a women's career than once they hit middle management. They identified six obstacles standing in women and girls' path into leadership. While they seem large and immovable, they also provide solutions for each of them. I'll paraphrase each of them for you. Obstacle one, socialization. This goes way back to the clothes and toys that children play with that reinforce traditional stereotypes. There's even a study that suggests the girls who play with Barbies saw fewer career options for themselves than girls who played with Mr. Potato Head. Yikes. As a mother of two teenage daughters, this was a bit concerning to discover. Here's why. I like Barbies. Why did you like Barbies? 
I got to dress them up and make them how I wanted to make them. And what do you mean, make them how you want to make them? Like do their hair, do their clothes, um, control a story. Like it's like making a story. We because we set up like the whole kitchen. That is my thirteen-year-old daughter, Kina telling me about her favorite toy growing up. You heard her, Barbie. My girls were obsessed with them. We had entire bins filled with plastic dolls, plastic furniture, and the teeny tiniest little shoes. Not sure I knew I was setting them up for limited career options at the time. I'm not sure she agrees with that statement either. Obstacle two is media representation. This idea is that women just don't see themselves in TV and movies. One study reports that in family films, there are 72% male leads compared to 28% female. When females are shown, they're often objectified or hypersexualized. This type of representation leads to unreasonable preoccupation with appearance, self-doubt, and low confidence. Again, I asked my daughter to weigh in on the subject, asking her about her favorite movie or TV character. I like Moana. Why do you like Moana? She's very adventurous. She likes the water. <laughs> and you like the water? <laughs> I guess. I like her hair. She's very adventurous. And I don't know how to say this, but like, even if someone tells her not to, she keeps on trying to do it. And like, she keeps on going back to do it. So persistent? Yes. I don't know what that word means. <laughs> it means yeah. just keep trying. Yeah, persistent. Okay, outside of her needing a little vocabulary work, the role models in TV or movies don't seem so bad. Even the Disney ones have stepped up their game, no longer being the victims of circumstance or waiting for their prince to come save them. They're adventurous and persistent. Great qualities for women. On to obstacle three, gender bias. It seems both men and women have a gender bias against women as leaders, and it starts at a young age. In a study by Harvard's Graduate School of Education, teenage boys and girls were asked who makes a more effective political leader, male or female. 23% of teen girls preferred male over female leaders, 8% preferred female leaders, and 69% reported no preference. When teenage boys were asked the same question, 40% preferred male leaders, only 4% preferred female, 56% expressed no preference. This speaks to our implicit biases and really how early they become ingrained. I asked Kina who she thought of when thinking of a leader. In a rambling of I don't know and giggling, she finally got out Michelle Obama, her teacher, Mrs. Mazzolino, and her principal, Mr. Ward. These make sense, considering her view of what leadership is. Obstacle four, lack of role models. Well, this seems obvious now going through the last three obstacles. While the same number of men and women enter university and the workforce, the ratio of women decreases as you go up the leadership ranks. It's a term I've just learned called leaking pipeline. It reinforces the misconception that women can't handle those roles. But what they need is someone to look to, a mentor or a guide. 
A KPMG study found 82% of women felt that access to women leaders and the ability to network with them would build their confidence in pursuing leadership roles. Obstacle five, women just can't see themselves as leaders. Okay, this is one that I can sort of understand. In the same KPMG study, six in 10 women aspired to be leaders, while the exact same ratio found it hard to see themselves in those roles. What? What is that? I think it's part of the imposter syndrome. Have you heard of this? It's the idea that we would be out of our league or element and we'll be found out to be a fraud. In my own opinion, we need to get out of our own way. Obstacle number six, the motherhood penalty. This goes back a bit to what Ivy was saying about the divide of reproductive labor. Women who are caregivers are sometimes seen as non-committed to the work. They get fewer opportunities because of the assumptions of other people. Or, in some cases, women choose not to pursue these opportunities because of the need to balance work and motherhood. Research has shown that girls as early as grade school assume their caregiving role will affect their careers. They thought they would need to stop work temporarily to care for young children. Boys of the same age? Not really thinking that way. Again, I went to my personal expert, Kina, for her thoughts on her own future plans. I'll be happy with a family with one boy, one girl, boys older so he can look after his sister. You'll have a dog and a nice big house, but not too big that we get lost in it. I'll have a good paying job, preferably as a scientist. Mm -hmm. I don't know what scientist, but in science, I like science. And my husband will have a good paying job as well, so we can raise our family and have good food and live on our own, not in our parents' basements. I completely appreciate her acknowledging that living in my basement is not an option for her future. However, I was slightly surprised to hear her talk about marriage and children as her first thought of her future. This isn't something we've discussed before, but we have a pretty traditional household and family life, so I'm sure that's what she's influenced by. In her mind, work is something she will do to make money. Important, but not as important as a husband and having a very specific birth order of her children. It's interesting that we are penalized for taking care of a family while working. Being a mother or caregiver in any sense is a very challenging and difficult job. But our society places a higher value on competition. Wouldn't it be great if the system was in place to help support women who are caregivers while they work? What would that look like? Ivy mentioned some seemingly easy ways to do this. It puts more onus on employers to realize who's around the table and what their needs are. We also need to kind of think about how it is that we construct an identity around leadership that is more inclusive. So this kind of all-consuming, you know, if you are going to be the CEO, you have to be, you know, up at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning and working until 11 o'clock at night. And that's not really acknowledging uh, women's outside lived experiences um, if they, uh, you know, because they are predominantly going to be caregivers outside. So how is it? So an example of bringing about, um, you know, systemic change is when do you schedule meetings 
and is that inclusive? Um, what are the procedures for how you recruit? Are you inclusive in your recruitment strategies? The suggestions that providing flexible work schedules, setting appropriate agendas, even setting reasonable meeting times. For example, Ivy suggests meetings could be later in the morning to help caregivers get children off to school. Requires such an awareness that isn't always present. From the sound of it, society has a long way to go before we see equity for women in leadership. We have a better understanding of what is standing in the way of women gaining leadership roles and experiences. But what can we do about it? This is where Ivy and her team have put some words into action. Over the past two years, they have moved on the Empowering Women Leaders in Health project. One of the first activities was hosting learning labs. So what we do in those learning labs is we provide, first of all, a business case for why is it that we should be focusing on women's leadership. And we highlight some of the issues um, that I raised before. You know, that women are predominantly in healthcare, but not in leadership positions. And what are some of the assumptions that we have about women in leadership positions? And what does the evidence actually say um, about that? Because there are a lot more assumptions than evidence. And then we um, introduce to them the toolkit. And they, ha- they come to the learning lab with uh, an idea in mind as to what they want to do what systemic change project they want to undertake uh, on behalf of their organization. And so we strongly encourage that, yes, you know, this is about professional development, personal professional development of the women leaders, but it's mostly about them taking on a project either at the organizational or at the system or policy level. The labs are an opportunity for women across healthcare to gather and connect and start working through some of the challenges they're experiencing. They were also given tools to help overcome some of those challenges. Ivy talked about a certain aspect of the initiative that I thought was important, to ensure they were hearing from every underrepresented group. That will be specifically targeting Indigenous women leaders, um, because they have a unique set of circumstances, um, in large part because there's such a focus now on on addressing um, inequities Uh, in regards to Indigenous health coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, of which we draw our inspiration. Um, But so many women are being tapped on the shoulder to come into leadership positions much earlier in their career. There are concerns about burnout, but there are also the additional contextual issues of, you know, systemic racism, uh, the, uh, the governance um, the unique set of governance uh, issues through the Indian Act, um, how that affects um, issues uh, on and off reserve. So we felt that there was such a unique set of circumstances that we wanted to have a uniquely targeted uh, learning lab for Indigenous women. The learning labs heard from everyone, including women in the Indigenous communities, who are not often given the opportunity to be heard. Um, you know, that it's not just about getting one woman to the table and her feeling very comfortable feeling at that table. We want that. But we want her to encourage and the men around the table to bring more women to the table to reach a tipping point because one woman at a table is not enough. 
not even two. Um, a number of the interviews that we had with established women leaders, they said things didn't start to change until there were three women around the table. And it changed the dynamics of the conversation. Um, it changed just like the social dynamics. And it changed the dynamics of what got on the agenda, what was discussed, initiatives that they pursued. And that's where we want to, to get to. Ivy's project also built communities of practice to extend these live learning lab events into the virtual realm and to keep conversations going. They have a Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn groups where anyone can contribute. But Ivy does talk about what real diversity would look like in healthcare leadership, and it's not just gender-based. That it's not just about getting women into leadership positions, but getting women from a variety of different professions into leadership positions. So the, the where we see women, uh, you know, being more likely to secure leadership positions, they're more likely to be women from medicine. Medicine is the dominant profession. So we want to encourage a leadership that's inclusive of all of the different um, scopes and roles that there are within the system, from nursing, from midwifery, medical lab, rec- recreational therapy, respiratory therapy, occupational physiotherapy. They all have a unique set of skills and knowledge to bring to leadership initiatives. Um, so that really needs to be as inclusive as possible. I thought this was important to include, especially when speaking to a mainly medical laboratory audience. How many medical laboratory professionals move into the higher ranks in a hospital compared to doctors and surgeons? Probably very few. Ivy's idea there that having a truly diverse leadership team includes professional diversity is valid. It goes back to one of the main obstacles for women, having no role models. If you're a woman, that's one thing. But a female lab professional, there are probably even less role models to look to in your own organization. However, with the digital world, I think you'd be able to find some incredible role models, even mentors, pretty quickly. I've worked at the CSMLS for just over eight years, and in that time, I am constantly amazed by the intelligent, ambitious, and influential women within this association's membership. These women are leaders in their own right. Our board of directors is made up of eight women and two men. There's no short supply of strong women in the lab profession. Let's get the rest of healthcare up to speed. I hope you take from this episode a bit more understanding of what it means to have diversity in leadership. I hope you're able to use that understanding to help encourage a more diverse leadership in your own organization. This isn't a feminist movement. It's about truly representing the people we lead, be them women, men, trans, from different cultures or communities and different professions. It should be inspiring to see someone who looks like you and understands what you have lived and worked through to be your voice. If you don't have someone in that role, maybe it's your turn. Be the voice for others just like you. And we can't get there alone. We need to raise each other up help the next woman get to where she needs to be to make change. It can even be in the smallest of details. Here's Ivy talking about a purposeful design they used for the project. Our logo 
uh, has three women breaking through the glass ceiling. It's not about one woman. It's about a diverse set of women breaking through the glass ceiling together, bringing people with you. So that was purpose of in our, in our logo. Not one woman alone, but three together. Because we can't do it alone. The Objective Lens is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science and is produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers. Writing by Michael Grant, Kate Hendricks, Natalia Harhai, and Kathy Bowers. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Technical support by Kartik Desai. If you like this or any of our other episodes, please rate them and like our podcast. We appreciate your support. Also, click on the subscribe button so you'll automatically be notified of our new releases. If you're a medical laboratory professional, you can take a short quiz after each episode. Upon completion, you'll receive a certificate that verifies professional development hours. Access the quizzes at podcast.csmls.org. While on the website, you'll find other great materials for each episode, like links to relevant articles. Have something to say? Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook using the handle at CSMLS. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.